You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's dark. You're sitting in front of the mirror getting ready for bed. There's nobody else in the house. You see something move in the corner of your eye. You glance to your right, but you don't see anything. Another minute goes by, and you think you see movement again. So you slowly turn to your left, but again, the room is empty. You turn back around, and staring you face to face in the mirror is a cat. You jump back, because you don't have a cat, and there's no cat in the room. But there he is, staring at you in the mirror. Welcome to Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week, we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Now, step into the supernatural world of pets with your Paranormal Pets ghostly host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I am your host, Brandy Stark, and tonight we are going to do a short article on five incredible things dogs sense before they happen, which I think we can tie nicely to the paranormal, and then we are going to continue on with our series on animal-human hybrids, specifically the mermaids. I will uh, advise you that in the background you will probably hear the snoring pug pack, particularly Achilles, who has naturally decided tonight to be incredibly noisy and snore. I do apologize in advance, but it's their home too. And hopefully it is not some sort of uh, preliminary warning about this episode because we are going to talk about sexually charged mermaids as well as mermaids as symbols of death. So that ought to be kind of fun. Anyway, we will get started with this right after these messages. Now time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome back. I will tell you that uh, hopefully this will go smoothly tonight. I just finished my summer session yesterday, an eight-week super intensive series of three classes that are done. I have one that runs a little bit longer, but it's online. And uh, this one is just a little bit tired, but that's okay, because we're going to do this episode. We're going to start with the I Love Dogs, All Dogs Matter article, Five Incredible Things Dogs Sense Before They Happen. Uh, This is by Renee Moen, and this is a little bit older. This is from February 9th, 2014. 
I'll probably break this up by adding in a few little commentary notes, particularly dealing with the paranormal. Dogs are incredibly intuitive and aware of their surroundings. They know when their person is sad and can pick up on stress when their household is in chaos. Some people believe that dogs can predict when someone is going to die or can see ghosts. Below are some of the other amazing things dogs can sense for one reason or another. 1. Earthquakes. Records as far back as ancient Greece tell of dogs fleeing the city of Helice or Helice before a tragic earthquake. China also has stories of dogs showing signs of distress before seismic activity. Although dogs are very much aware of their surroundings, some scientists argue that dogs' hearing is so perceptive that they can hear rocks crumbling under the ground surface. Some seismologists think that the dogs feel seismic activity through their paws. Either way, if a dog is in an earthquake-prone area and begins to act odd, maybe a spontaneous road trip is in order. I will supplement that by saying, if you live in a haunted house and your dog starts really, really wanting out, I would go with him. Storms. Just like with earthquakes, dogs can sense something on the horizon. Storms create an electromagnetic force that dogs can sense before the storm hits. Dogs also use their amazing sense of hearing and could possibly hear the thunder rumble for several miles away. Their olfactory senses are 100 times more sensitive than that of humans, and most likely they can smell the electrical current in the air. Well, I'm not quite sure how that works for pugs, since they have snouts that are about one inch long, but I do know they have a better sense of smell than I do. It is also interesting to note that in the paranormal field, electromagnetic meters are used to sense ghosts. So if that theory is correct, an EMF is one way to determine if a ghost is present, and dogs are known to be able to sense EMF naturally. And honestly, I think some people do too. I think humans, you can kind of feel it, uh, the electrical charge in the air type thing. Then it, it would be a nice correlation to why dogs see ghosts. Of course, in 100 years, I keep thinking that people are going to look back to our time period, to this whole ghost hunting craze, and they're going to say, uh, what? <laughs> what were they doing? They're totally wrong. EMF has nothing to do with anything, you know, and all of this will just be blown out of the water, but, you know, we'll see. Three, illness, including cancer. Humans give off faint odors of illness, such as certain cancers and diabetes, too subtle for another human to detect, but with the dogs, an amazing sense of smell yeah, that's an awkward sentence. But with the dog's amazing sense of smell, they may sniff out something that may be off. If a dog is sniffing a particular area on the owner's body obsessively, maybe a visit to the doctor should be in order. Now, I do find that interesting. On occasion with the rats, because rats live fast, <laughs> essentially. They live wonderful lives, but they burn through life very quickly. So rats usually live, for me, about three years. And I do know that as rats get closer to the end, or if they contract an illness, I can actually smell that. I mean, they, they do produce a distinctive odor. It smells like infection, if you will. So I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, it might also be why dogs are associated with death again. They are psychopomp-type creatures. They are guardians between the threshold of this world and the next. And it could be in part due to this. It's also in part because they're scavengers and they eat dead things, which makes them, you know, what they eat, essentially, and thereby connected to death. But we'll just leave that alone for tonight. And I'm curious about number five. I have no babies. I don't want any babies. I have rats and pugs, and I think that's all I need. But I am curious to know if anybody has had a labor story in which their dog actually did any of this. So number five, labor. 
There have been documented reports of dogs predicting their onset of labor in pregnant women, stories of dogs becoming virtual shadows of their pregnant owners the day before or the day of the onset of labor are one of the many warning signals. Guesses as to how these dogs know to prepare for the new bundle of joy range from sensing the physical transition of the pregnancy or the woman giving off a labor scent. So that's kind of interesting. Life and death, two opposites to the single coin of existence, you know, might also explain why dogs end up as guardian type figures. So interesting stuff. All right. And now it is time to talk about mermaids. Now, let me preface this by saying, in addition to the academics and to the teaching and to having a grumble of pugs and a mischief or two of rats and doing the ghost hunting... (laughs) I'm making myself tired already. My, really, my part-time job, if you will, my secondary career on top of the paranormal thing is actually art. I do hand-wrapped wire metal pieces. I've done them since I was an undergraduate. Uh, I took a course in sculpture, beginning sculpture, uh, in 1996. So I'm an old lady, but that's okay. So that means that this year is my 20th year of doing hand-wrapped wire metal pieces, Next year will be the 20th anniversary of my first art show. Now, what I typically make out of metal, the most popular piece or figure is the mermaid. I kind of feel like they just emerge. Folks have usually told me they find it very strange that I will sit down with a stack of metal and I just bend it into something and it becomes a statue. I have no preliminary designs. I don't draw anything out. I simply make it. And mermaids and metal go really well together because the metal is very fluid and malleable. And so are mermaids, right? They are water elementals, among other things. But, and actually what's interesting is mermaids are, I I mean, I make tons of mermaids. You have no idea. My guess would be 50 to 100, maybe 150 a year, which considering they're all hand bent (laughs) by wire and by my very very sore fingertips and without tools, it's pretty good. I I do tend to average uh, a pretty high number of them. So, and that does not include fairies, cats, dragons, if anything shows up. On occasion, I'll do rat statues. But the mermaid, I don't know. I, I never saw that coming. I never saw the art coming. I always want to be a writer and a professor. And so much to my surprise, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's this art thing. And even more surprising, it's wire metal. Okay. So that's why when I discovered this little article in here, I was so thrilled because this is kind of some neat stuff on mermaids. I might end up posting this episode to my official art page as well. If you are on Facebook, you're welcome to look up Brandy Stark of Stark Images and you'll kind of see some of the things I do. But this might be something that's pretty interesting. So this is still coming from that monster book that I have described before, and I have all sorts of bookmarks in it. The article is called Mermaids, Attributes, Behavior, and Environs by Sky Alexander. And we'll just take a couple of paragraphs, and then we're going to go into Homer's Odyssey to talk about some of the earliest known mermaids out there. So she starts off and says, in addition to their fishy tails and human torsos, the traits and behaviors of mermaids are similar to the various mythologies of the world. These attributes become more homogenized during the middle of the second millennium CE as trade routes expand and seamen journeyed far and wide, sharing their fish stories with people of various lands. Later immigrants and slaves brought their mermaid legends with them when they relocated and those tales merged with the folklore that already existed in their new homes. 
However, certain common mermaid characteristics figured prominently in the mythology of diverse cultures long before the periods of travel and exploration in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Chief among these are the mermaids' enchanting voices, their sensuality, and their destructive potential, all of which lie at the core of mermaid mystique. So they're beautiful, sensual, singers, and deadly. Perfect combination, right? The mermaid song. Uh, according to nearly all legends and stories, a mermaid's voice isn't merely melodious enough to rival the greatest operatic divas. It is so mesmerizing that men who hear it go wild with delight and jump from their boats and rush into the sea and then drown. Now, when I have studied mermaids, the sirens in particular, which I think we'll have as kind of a, a separate offshoot here, but the story that the analysis that I've come up with over the years is that the mermaid singing may be something like the call to go home or even the madness that comes with the long journey, that the mermaids are able to encapsulate this, the feminine, the way home, you know, the desire to be home. And so the song is actually the desire to be where you're from in that that's dangerous, I guess, right? Particularly if you're on a journey, right? You're not supposed to think about where you're from. You're supposed to be thinking about where you're going. Literary accounts of mermaid songs. She talks about a thousand and one nights that rendered sailors helpless and lured them to their doom. The sirens of ancient Greek myth are presented as melodious but malevolent. No man could resist their tantalizing singing. And we'll talk about Homer's Odyssey. Some sources report males. Now, see, I used to collect mermen. I still have a few mermen uh, around here in my collection. I always thought they totally rocked. And it's interesting because they do say this subject remains pretty quiet on mermen's singing abilities, but some sources say the men have silvery or fluted voices, though nothing as exquisite as the females. So, ladies, ah, sorry. It's the guys, I guess, that get the beautiful mermaids. We get the handsome mermen, but they're just not as talented. It's actually fairly interesting. They do have one merman, the Havman from Scandinavia, who is said to be an accomplished violinist and who enchants women with his skillful playing. And then, of course, you do have uh, Triton, the son of Poseidon, who blew a trumpet, who blew a, a conch shell. Deadly beauties. Let's see. So do mermaids intend to kill or is this an overreaction? Is it humankind and our inability to curb our desire that ultimately ends up killing us? And apparently this is something for debate. Uh, it's interesting because some stories say that mermaids drag men they fancy down into the depths and accidentally drown them, not realizing that humans can't breathe underwater. Hans Christian Andersen's popular fairy tale, The Little Mermaid, offers yet another perspective in which the mermaid song is a compassionate attempt to calm the fears of sailors who are about to drown in a storm at sea. Uh, by the way, let me add this little caveat. If you're a Disney fan, I'm sorry, but Disney sucks and they're completely evil. The Little Mermaid that they presented, Anderson's Tale, if you read the originals on any of these, they're pretty grim. The Little Mermaid basically dies of depression because she's rejected. She does not fit in on the land and she cannot go back to the sea. So just a little heads up for you. Ariel, uh, it's kind of interesting. I've seen some of the memes that are out there floating around, and I guess Ariel now would be in her 40s. <laughs> so, and I'm wondering how those shells are holding up these days. Anyway, the Tempest. Many legends link mermaids with storms and even blame them 
for whipping up tempests at sea in order to sink ships. Some old English stories portrayed mermaids as evil omens and portents of bad luck. It's said that if a sailor spotted a mermaid, it meant bad weather was coming and he'd never return home again. So again, a mermaid um, as a portent of death. Medieval church fathers linked mermaids with the deadly sins of vanity and lust, as well as the alluring powers of women in general. Some churches displayed images of mermaids swimming with fish or starfish, which symbolized Christians as a warning against sexual temptations. If a mermaid held a fish in her hands, it signified that a Christian had succumbed to the sin of lust. The Middle Ages, by the way, totally rock. Lots of fun stuff there. They could be good fortune. The African water deities known as Mami Wata often appeared as mermaids, and they healed the sick and brought good fortune. In the Caribbean, the mermaid Lysirene guides people, usually women, underwater, where she confers special powers on them. Mermaids, changeable. They definitely have... It's kind of interesting. Uh, it characterizes a mermaid as a beast of the sea, wonderfully shaped as a maid from the navel up and a fish from the navel downward. And this beast is glad and merry in tempest and sad and heavy in fair weather. Boy, they juxtapose those uh, personalities quite a bit. One thing that you will always find on a mermaid is beautiful hair. And I mean, if you think about it, uh, that makes some sense. If you're underwater, you've got to have that great halo, right? That beautiful hair floating around you. And it's funny, she starts off and says, you'll never see a picture of a mermaid with a pixie or brush cut, <laughs> right? Yes, and this is true. Even with the sculptures that I create, and initially, one thing that I was criticized on or requested, it's not really a criticism, it's constructive criticism, but I would make custom mermaids and invariably people would say, well, she needs more hair. And you have to understand, I mean, I made it long, a little bit beyond shoulder blade length, but mermaids have long hair, right? I still read DC Comics, uh, and I read Aquaman, and of course, uh, they are rebooting their universe again, and with Aquaman is Mera, that they refer to as the mermaid, right? This mermaid lady. She is an Atlantean female, and by golly, despite the fact that she's a warrior wearing a skin-tight outfit and with, you know, quite a bustier thing going she has long locks of red hair. I always thought that was rather odd, particularly for females in combat situations, because, you know, hair can be easily grabbed uh, and can be a very quick liability. But, you know, I think they're taking after this mermaid tradition. Green is the most popular color of mermaid hair. I have made green as well as all sorts of other colors. The ancient Greek tritons had green hair, and Ireland and British Isles also have green-haired merfolk. Australia said yok yoks had long hair that looked like seaweed or green algae. And in Scandinavia, they liked their golden-haired mermaids, which is yet another popular color. And I'm sure you can guess yet another popular mermaid hair color is red, of course, because of Disney. So I think at this point, we will pause, we'll add in some commercials, and then we will kind of finish up and get into our tale of Odysseus and the Sirens. So we will be right back after these messages. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. young lady from the rescue delivered happy and I panicked. He was missing hair, stinky, scabby, and I thought, what did I get us into? The cause of his issue was poor nutrition. 
it was neglect. The other owners didn't care enough about him to give him the nutrition he needed. But I have a vet that I trust, and she recommended Dinovite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I ordered the first 90-day supply, and within a couple weeks, His skin started clearing up. He didn't smell. He had more energy. He just had a glow and a bounce about him. We've been using DinoBite for the last year, and happy the rescue dog is happy the healthy dog. I tell all my friends who have rescues to give their dog the chance at a new start with DinoBite. It's going to pay off for you and your dog for years to come. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Are you having trouble getting the word out about your new pet product or invention? Let Whitegate PR open the gate to your marketing and public relations efforts. We've been specializing in public relations in the pet industry for over a decade. From press releases to media relations and publicity to pet trade shows and launch events to social media, the pet-friendly team at Whitegate PR has you covered. If you listen to the wise words of Bill Gates, he says, if I had $1 left, I'd spend it on PR. Learn more at whitegatepr.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. And welcome back. Let's go ahead and finish up the last of our symbolisms associated with mermaids. Uh, these do include things like combs and mirrors. you got to comb that long, long hair. So uh, they do appear with those. And of course, mermaids are also kind of notoriously vain. So just a, an FYI for you. It might also connect mermaids to uh, goddesses of love and sexuality. Mermaids, I've often heard, also represent water elementals. Water is a symbol of fertility life essentially uh, the birthing water uh, life fluid so that would make some sense and of course they can seduce another aspect for the long hair long hair represents sexuality uh, we certainly know that worldwide where married women cover their hair unless they're in the presence of their husbands which goes through christianity through probably the 40s anyway uh, catholicism a little bit beyond that orthodox judaism Islam with the hijab, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that uncommon here representing sexuality. And of course, this goes both ways. It also works for men. When I teach on the sculpture of David, Michelangelo's David, David has an awesome head of hair. But David was also the hottest thing in the Old Testament with quite a few female companions. So interestingly enough, I think he even got married on his deathbed and this one just like warmed his bed for him. I'm like, wow, you go, man. So the long hair is sexuality, fertility, strength, virility, health, and of course, sensual, right? Hair is one of the most sensual things that we have. So kind of an interesting idea. So we will talk a little bit about the Greeks. One of my first pugs that I owned was named Odyssey. His sister was the Iliad. Personally, I like the Iliad, the epic, better than the Odyssey, but most often I teach on the Odyssey. There is something about the Odyssey 
that moderns like. And I think it's that human story. It is much more focused. It's not necessarily war in so much as it is the journey home, the journey for survival, overcoming obstacles, putting things right in your life. And ladies love Odysseus because look in the epic. Read this thing. Don't just believe me. But he has a patron goddess, uh, Athena, the virgin patron goddess, but goddess of thinking, right? Not necessarily wisdom, but of, well, yeah, wisdom too, but of planning. She is a sharp cookie, gray-eyed Athena. He ends up on the island of Calypso and Circe, and he has kids with both of them, right? And in fact, in order to pry him away from these goddesses, I mean, the gods have to intervene, and they have to say, uh, excuse me, but, you know, Calypso, let him go. Circe, let him go. Then you end up, he is shipwrecked, and rescued by a Phoenician princess who brings him to her daddy, the king, who then realizes who he is, right? And you also have his wife, Penelope, who waits for him for 20 years. Now, I have my theories on Penelope uh, in particular that she is, um, as long as her husband's dead, she seems to have more power within the household. But she's also a trickster. Uh, Odysseus is a trickster, And so is Penelope. She is a womanly trickster, showing that she weaves her husband's death shroud during the day, and then she unravels it at night. So, I mean, these characters are fascinating. He has this great interaction. Yet, there's something that happens with Odysseus. His journey is liminal. And in fact, when I teach on Homer, we do talk about the liminal state. Homer revolutionizes the idea of the afterlife with the the arrival of Hades, right? For, For the first time, now Greeks are not saying that their ancestors are trapped in the grave, that they come and go through the grave, they can, but there is an underworld. Uh, where the dead go, and thereby I am not responsible to stay here and honor my ancestral tombs because they are simply holding places for the body. So the Odyssey is all about liminality. In addition to these women who are goddesses, I mean, Circe's a sorceress goddess, kind of. Calypso is the hidden. Uh, She's the goddess of the island, right? Um, Penelope is cousin to Helen and Clytemnestra, like Helen of Troy, right? Clytemnestra, who's married to Agamemnon and kills him in his bathtub. Those are some strange women. But on his way home, I mean, look who Odysseus encounters. He's constantly in and out of the god state. So he encounters the god of the winds, right? He encounters the Cyclopes, Polyphemus, right? He encounters the island of Helios. And that's what actually gets his men cursed because they are running low on supplies and they're starving. They land on this island and it's full of cattle that belong to the god, which really sucks because Helios is the god of the sun and you're not supposed to eat his cattle. And after being kind of, they settle in there for a short time thinking that they're going to sail off to another island and then the weather turns. They're trapped there. So they're already hungry, they're trapped on an island full of cattle that are sacred, and after a number of days, I mean, Odysseus keeps telling his men, don't do it, don't eat them, don't do it, don't eat them, and they listen for a while, but 
then they turn and they do kill the cattle and they eat them. And you, you gotta know something bad's gonna happen because the meat lows on the spit and the hides, I guess, I don't know what else you call them, the skin that's been discarded begins to walk around. <laughs> so, you know, it's actually eating that sacred meat that curses the men. Odysseus himself additionally screws up because of his use of hubris uh, when he meets Polyphemus, the Cyclops, who is a cannibal. They escape, and if Odysseus had just stuck with his story that his name was No Man, they would have gotten out. But no, Odysseus has to be the trickster and has to be acknowledged as a trickster. And so he says, oh, my name is Odysseus. You know, I live in Ithaca. Come and get me. And Polyphemus turns out to be the son of Poseidon. So that doesn't do much good for him. So all the men are wiped out. Odysseus has to battle Poseidon. But we're not done yet. There's yet another liminal encounter. Uh, You've got Scylla and Charybdis. You've got the Sirens. And that brings us to the last bit of this episode. This is from the Odyssey. Odysseus is on his way home, and he's trying to get away from Circe. Uh, Circe's interesting. I believe she ends up marrying Telemachus, the son of Odysseus by Penelope. And Penelope, when she is widowed, marries Telegonus, who I believe is the younger son of Odysseus and Circe, which is totally creepy. I mean, these myths, they're totally awesome, but they're a little weird too. It's like a comic book or a soap opera. I mean, they're really fun. So here we go. Dawn rose on her golden throne and lustrous Circe made her way back up the island. I, Odysseus, went straight to my ship, commanding all hands to take the deck and cast off the cables quickly. Now remember, Odysseus has had a a one-year layover with Circe, and he, the whole epic opens with him sitting on the shore weeping manly tears because he wants to go home and be king of Ithaca okay Circe is reluctant she's a hardcore sorceress she's a you know a pretty tough chicky and essentially again the gods send down you know Hermes who says let him go so Circe has been overridden so Odysseus now has the go-ahead and he is not wasting time and off they go so I called to my men, and they cast off the cables quickly. They swung aboard at once. They sat to the oars in ranks, and in rhythm churned the waters, white with stroke on stroke, and Circe the nymph with glossy braids, the awesome one who speaks with human voice, sent us a hearty shipmate, yes, a fresh following wind ruffling up our wake, bellying out our sail to drive our blue prow on as we, securing the running gear from stem to stern, sat back while the wind and the helmsman kept her true on course, and at last, at sore at heart, I told my shipmates, friends, it's wrong for only one or two to know the revelations that lovely Circe made to me alone. I'll tell you all so we can die with our eyes wide open now or escape our fate and certain deaths together. First, she warns, we must steer clear of the sirens, their enchanting song, their meadow starred with flowers. I alone was to hear their voice. So she said, but you must bind me with tight chaffing ropes so I cannot move a muscle bound to the spot. Erect at a mast block, lashed by ropes to the mast, and if I plead commanding you to set me free, then lash me faster, rope on pressing rope. So I informed my shipmates point by point, all the while our trim ship was speeding toward the siren's island, driven on by the brisk wind, and then the wind fell in an instant, all glazed to a dead calm. A mysterious power hushed the heaving swells. The oarsmen leapt to their feet, struck the sail, stowed it deep in the hold, and sat to the oarlocks, thrashing with polished oars, frothing the water white. 
Now with a sharp sword, I slice the ample wheel of beeswax down into pieces, kneading them in my two strong hands, and the wax soon grew soft, worked by my strength and Helios' burning rays, the sun at high noon, and I stopped the ears of my comrades one by one. They bound me hand and foot in the tight ship, erect at the mast block, lashed by ropes to the mast, and rowed and turned the white cap stroke on stroke. We were just offshore as far as men's shouts can carry, scuttling close, when the sirens sensed at once a ship was racing past and burst into their high-thrilling songs. Come closer, famous Odysseus, Achaeus' pride and glory. Moor your ship on our coast so you can hear our song. Never has any sailor passed our shores in his black craft until he has heard the honeyed voices pouring from our lips. And once he hears it to his heart's content, he sails on a wiser man. We know all the pains that the Greeks and the Trojans once endured on that spreading plain of Troy. When the gods willed it so, all that comes to pass on this fertile earth. We know it all. So they sent their ravishing voices out across the air, and the heart inside me throbbed to listen longer. I signaled the crew with frowns to set me free. They flung themselves at the oars and rode on harder. Perimedes and Eucalus springing up at once to bind me faster with ropes on chafting rope. But once we left the sirens fading in our wake, once we could hear the song no more, their urgent call, my steadfast crew was quick to remove the wax I'd used to seal their ears and loosen the bonds that lashed me. So... Uh, in case you don't know, I believe the sirens, uh, because they have failed to kill Odysseus, end up committing suicide. And Odysseus's uh, journey is not done. I mean, this poor man, he remains in the liminal state, quite literally in the liminal state, because in order to get home, he has to sail into Hades, where he meets the, the dead prophet Tiresias, and he encounters ghosts. And if you really want something fun, read about the ghost of Anticlea, his mother, because if you think your mother guilts you now, this is nothing new. When he sees his dead mother, who died while he was gone, he had no idea. She, I shouldn't laugh at this, but it is funny. She actually says, I died because I didn't hear from you. So my heart broke because you did not contact me and I thought you were dead. That is a maternal guilt trip. So with that... Oh, this episode's running a little long, so I guess I will stop here. I am going to remind you to please remember your rescue groups, Pug Rescue of Florida or the Florida Rat Rescue or any rescue organization that's out there. Go to rescue before getting a new pet, please. When rescues are no longer needed, (laughs) we can go back for puppies and kittens, right? If you would like to see more on the paranormal investigations of my group, uh, please check out St. Petersburg Paranormal Investigation. That is SPPI Pinellas at, excuse me, SPPIPinellas.net. There we go. Hopefully, I will hear from some of you. If you have comments, don't forget the, the stories, if anybody has them, on dogs and sensing labor. I just think that's really cool. All right. And with that... The last of my brain cells is very tired, and so I think we will end here. Happy, happy hauntings, and have a wonderful night. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. 
Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>